Hello fellow readers and welcome back to Ravenclaw Readers with me Claire and Ella and Paul. This week we're taking a look at chapter 14 of the Philosopher's Stone, Norbert the Norwegian Ridgeback, along with the story of Cadmus and the founding of Thebes from Ovid's Metamorphosis. Yeah, so I felt like this chapter was kind of quite choppy and there was a lot of things happening. So, um, Ella, please refresh our memories because I think that there's lots of details I've probably already forgotten here. Yeah, it's a longer summary this week. Uh, so, hoping to learn more about the Philosopher's Stone, Harry, Ron and Hermione visit Hagrid, who reveals, in addition to Fluffy, Professors Sprout, Flitwick, McGonagall, Quirrell, Dumbledore and Snape have all placed their own protective enchantments around the stone. While there, they notice an illegal dragon egg in the fire, which Hagrid had won in a card game the previous evening. A few days later, they're summoned back to Hagrid's cabin to witness the hatching, only to realise too late that Malfoy had followed them and had seen Norbert as well. Realising that Hagrid couldn't possibly raise an illegal dragon in his wooden cabin without further detection, Ron writes to his brother Charlie in the hope that he'll be able to release Norbert into the wild in Romania. Charlie agrees, and on the appointed evening, Harry and Hermione manage to smuggle Norbert up to the tallest tower for Charlie's friends to collect. Too busy celebrating, they forget to pick up the invisibility cloak and are caught by Filch on the way back to Gryffindor Tower. Oh my gosh. Actually, Paul was saying that he was so anticipating what was happening in the next chapter, he actually went on and read a little bit from the next one, didn't you, Paul? I just read a few sentences and then thought, slapped myself and thought better. <laughs> it's the invisibility cloak just lying there. I'm oh, I know. It. It's horrible. It makes me feel... Ugh. This is the tale of Cadmus and how he founded Thebes. Cadmus is sent to eternal banishment for failing to find his sister Europa, who has been stolen away by Zeus, or Jove, to the Romans in this book. In despair, he turns the, to the oracle Phoebus, also known as Apollo, who tells Cadmus that, quote, you will meet a heifer in a trackless place, one who has not borne the yoke nor broken up the earth with a curved plough. Follow her lead, wherever she reposes, there build your city. Upon finding such a creature, Cadmus does as Phoebus instructed and blesses this new land as his home. His next action must be to make a sacrifice to Jove and sends his attendants to find a spring of running water. His attendants come across a cave with a worthy spring, but it is guarded by the golden crescent serpent of Mars. I say serpent here as it is uh, what the creature is called in this translation, but the beast is also commonly known as Mars's dragon. Just as a side note there, we can get back to that. Uh, the men are paralyzed by fear as the serpent mercilessly attacks and kills them. Cadmus, wondering what is keeping the men, sets out after them. He comes across the cave and comes face to face with the mighty beast. The two lock in ferocious battle until Cadmus finally manages to slay the creature and sets its body upon an oak tree. Suddenly, he hears a voice call, why do you gape at the slain serpent, Cadmus, when you yourself are fated to become a spectacle, a serpent well worth seeing? The voice comes from his patron, Athena, who tells him to take the teeth from the serpent and plant them in the soil. Cadmus does just this, and from the earth sprout men armed with helmets, shields, and spears. Cadmus is astonished by this sight and prepares for a battle, but the men call for him not to intervene in their civil war. The men proceed to violently attack one another so that, quote, these brothers are of a moment slew each other until a young man whose lives had just begun lay beating the breast of their ensanguined mother. Finally, only five remained, and it was with these five that Cadmus went on to found the city prophesied by Phoebus. 
So why this secondary text was chosen? Admittedly, I did not choose to read from the best translation of this tale since the particular one we we looked at used the word serpent instead of dragon. Uh, However, the role of the serpent and dragon are often uh, very similar in Greek and Roman mythology. For example, the serpent that guards the golden fleece in the Argonautica that we did previously, that's often called a dragon. Um, Still, I wanted to think about how these creatures are portrayed in both the myth and the chapter from the Philosopher's Stone. They both signal a danger, though the danger is of a different sort. I can't help but think of the foreboding warning of here be dragons that resides on ancient and medieval maps. The beast that Cadmus has to face is a challenge of physical power, whereas Harry, Ron and Hermione have to use their cunning and wits. Both the dragon and the serpent are obstacles in themselves, and though Cadmus is rewarded by his patron Athena, the same could not be said for the trio of helping rid Hogwarts of a dangerous dragon. Um, Should we address the issue that Ella and I were discussing um, just very quickly? We we find out in book seven from Charlie that Norbert, although called Norbert and called he in this chapter, is actually a female dragon and they rename her Norberta. Um, So how should we address the dragon in this chapter? Shall we just go with she, despite the fact that it doesn't say that here? Yeah, I think I think if Norbert doesn't suffice in a particular circumstance, I'll probably say she. Yeah, is that okay? Paul, see, Paul doesn't even know this. I feel like this chapter, you can tell that it was ed- edited quite a lot. Uh, there's lots of breaks in the middle of it where suddenly the scene changes and it's like, next week! And it's like, you can just tell that J.K. Rowling was just basically told to get a lot done in this chapter. And I kind of, I don't know, do you think it works, Paul? I think I, think, uh, I had a sense the Malfoy plot was cut yeah, short. Yeah, well, I barely even felt that at all until the end. And it was like, oh yeah, wait, Malfoy's doing a thing. It is important, which is why yeah. she left it in. Yeah. But it does end... Um, mm rather wetly. I thought he seemed very un-Malfoy-like, though, in this chapter, in the sense that he didn't yeah. use the knowledge to his advantage. He just kind of sort of threatened yeah. to tell somebody, but he never actually did, okay. when that could have really have, like, properly thrown them off. Yeah, shall we get into that? Because... <laughs> yeah, so I think it's... Yeah, yeah, why? Okay, so basically we know... Let's try to remember this timeline, because even I was getting kind of confused. So basically what happens is Malfoy overhears Ron and Harry talking about Norbert, doesn't he, in one of their classes? And then he follows them down to the cabin, unbeknownst to them. Oh, yes. Oh, because, you know, it's in Herbology. They get a note from Hagrid saying that the the dragon is hatching and they're like, oh, let's go. Let's skip class. And Hermione's like, no, we are not doing that. Good call, Hermione. Um, and then they they go down afterwards and Malfoy follows them down and sees Norbert hatching. But then he just sits on this information for a week does that make sense for draco malfoy to do that let's why would he why would he do that except for obviously it having to fit the plot let's ignore that and try to think of a character motivation for why malfoy would wait so long with this information well i'm going to begin answering your question by answering a different question (laughs) by posing another question it's Mm. it's i think it's not that malfoy knows it's more that he knows through their carelessness so there's a um, a theme which yeah. runs through this chapter, and interestingly, uh, through the um, the uh, the Ovid that we we had to read, which mm-hmm. of of uh, carelessness. Yeah. So it starts with Hermione um, preparing for exams, and you know this idea of failing to prepare, prepare to fail, mm-hmm. um, and they are they are careless in let in letting Malfoy hear it, but they're equally careless when. Um, uh, Malfoy gets the letter. Um, interestingly, in the in the Cadmus story, it's that the men who go to the river are 
they're they're not aware of the potential danger. They're careless. They're splashing around, and in doing so, they awaken the danger which they are blind to, and it kills them. So I think it's you're right. Maybe it doesn't make sense for Malfoy to sit on this information. Maybe he doesn't know what to do with the information. Mm-hmm. But I think it's more interesting to to think not from Malfoy's point of view, but from the gang's point of view. Okay. Yeah, I can see what you mean. Um, because one of the things that uh, th- that I noticed about as well for a, a theme is the idea of responsibility. And I feel that that ties into what you were saying about carelessness. I think that those two things are intertwined. So Cadmus, when his men don't show up, he doesn't think they're in danger. He just wonders what's keeping them. Mm. And, he goes, and when he goes to f- look for them, he brings his shield and weapons yeah because you know he's prepared yeah so you think that cadmus is prepared is he prepared by virtue of having this it's it's a strange thing that's advice but also a prophecy from a phoebus i might call him apollo during this basically yeah phoebus and apollo are the same they're the sun god um i'm more familiar with the greek names which is apollo but this translation being ovid uses mostly roman names so i'm sorry if people get confused by that phoebus and apollo same person um yeah so is it is it advice that because apollo when he tells cadmus about this heifer is he advising him or is he prophesizing or is it kind of one and the same in this instance and he's therefore preparing He's giving Cadmus a responsibility and making him prepare. I think these these tales, the the prophecies tend to be sort of self-fulfilling. Mm-hmm. So the way I read it is uh, Apollo tells Cadmus to look follow this heifer, the unyoked heifer, the untamed cow. Um, and it reminded me of uh, the beginning of uh, The Old Curiosity Shop by Dickens, which is something I've mentioned on this podcast before, where it begins with uh, Mr. Humphrey, uh, filling in his diary and he decides to follow random things on the street and he follows this little girl and in this one sort of random occurrence this whole novel sort of uh, develops and equally um cadmus follows the the cow into this unknown land and thebes emerges i think it's so in in that sense if you follow if you go to the unknown uh which is what he's saying uh great there's great danger there but also you can achieve great things and he, but he's doing it through having the guidance of apollo so it is an unknown but there's also a trust in apollo's prophecy that it will bring him like it will be fruitful for him yeah um so when we think of the idea of responsibility one of the things that i think of when i'm thinking of that is um Hagrid and how he's just being very irresponsible and he's not being a good guide in this particular chapter. I think the fact that he refers to himself as mummy shows that it's a sort of game to him. We've seen that he's very parental. Yeah. He, he, but it's it, not a game in a mean way. Like that makes it sound like, like I feel like Malfoy is playing a game in this chapter. I suppose what I mean oh, is so that I guess he's not a, taking it seriously. I see, yes, yeah. Because if he was to take it seriously, he would have to get rid of Norbert. Or Norberta. <laughs> I don't know. What do you think about Hagrid in this chapter? Not his best moment. No, I think he's just blinded by the love that he has for magical creatures. Mm. Um, and 
is just unable to see how completely impractical it is because first off this is an illegal dragon he shouldn't even have in the first place even if he had a suitable home to accommodate it um and we see that he is so consumed with having to care for a demanding baby dragon that he's unable to fulfill his duties as gamekeeper which is you know the second chance that Dumbledore gave him was to be a gamekeeper. So he's also jeopardising that by trying to raise an illegal dragon. Um, so I think on all fronts, he's just... He's very misguided, bad judgment, I think. Yeah. I can't hold it against him. No, you can't. No. Can you? <laughs> you have to love Hagrid. That's the thing. I I feel as much as I really think he has been disappointing in this chapter... I can still not bear a grudge against him for it. Um, and I suppose that is Hagrid's great redemptive quality, but I still don't want that to get in the way of being critical of him because these three 11, 12-year-old children are being more mature about this than he is. And, you know, he needs to... I suppose he does know at the end of the day that what he's doing is not right because he allows them to take Norbert and, and give them to Charlie's friends so he can be transferred to Romania. And, um, you know, the fact that he does that without too much fuss, I think he does recognize that this is not something that is sustainable, having a dragon. Um, and yet he never seems to quite... He still holds on to a delusion, like a delusional idea of, oh, well, it, nothing that the, the dragon does is, oh, it's just playing or, you know, the, when it's, I don't know, he's, he's still, he's still of two minds about it, maybe. I think the, the rational side of him wins out, but I think he's still very emotionally tied to, to it. Yeah. I think he is, he, you know, uh, Hagrid is one of these characters who has a sort of arrested development. He seems to have gotten so far and he's remained a sort of child, which is interesting because the way I read this story about Cadmus is that it is a story about maturation. So um, Apollo, one of his many duties was to preside over the education of young and bring them um, out of their adolescence. And boys would cut their hair oh, yeah. when they become of age mm-hmm. in a, as a sacrifice for Apollo. And I, the way I read the story, it is, you, you know, Cadmus goes into the unknown as one does as an adult. You, you leave home. Mm-hmm. You go into the unknown. You face this deep, dark beast, which is the, the snake or dragon, um, of which he, when he's fighting it, he's, he's, he's scared. Um, it, it the earth, and it it manifests in the whole like unknown space. It's it's the the earth is shaking. His the whole air is infected with his breath. And then when he kills the 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 dragon, um, he's he's again he's afraid. But it's a different kind of fear. And it, I think this plays into what you're saying about responsibility. It's the fear of the responsible adult. Now he has people to look after. Mm-hmm. He's no he. This is where he cuts his hair. And gets a jab. <laughs> and with Hagrid, he, you know, famously, he, he still has that long hair. He's still <laughs> a child. And Harry, Hermione and Ron are getting there. They're following the heifer into the unknown. Um, and that, that heifer for them could be Nicholas Flamel. Mm-hmm. You know, these lines of inquiry, like this, this little thing... Um, about Nicholas Fromell has opened up this whole plot, this whole dark evil scheme, which they couldn't have possibly imagined. 
and I look forward to reading on in the novel when they do have to fight that dragon or whatever. I can't remember. You can't remember what it is, what they have to fight at the end. I don't. (laughs) I think you're right when you say that's the thing that Hagrid never does in this chapter. So even though he does recognize the danger of Norbert and lets her go, um, I think that, yeah, what you said there, he never actually steps into the role of responsible adult here. Um, and again, I really I hate being so negative about Hagrid because I I do love him, but um, I just I just think in this chapter he's just being so responsible. So um, even when when Ron gets um bitten terribly, this is Ron. It bit me, he said, showing them his hand, which was wrapped in a bloody handkerchief. I'm not going to be able to hold a quill for a week, I tell you. That dragon's the most horrible animal I've ever met. But the way Hagrid goes on about it, you think it was a fluffy little bunny rabbit. When it bit me, he told me all for frightening it. And when I left, he was singing it a lullaby. So he's um he's blaming like Ron for trying... Ron's trying to help and Hagrid is snapping at him and saying, oh, you frightened Norbert. And I think... I mean, maybe a part of that is because Hagrid knows that what he's doing is irresponsible, but he can't really face it. So he just snaps at Ron and tries to blame, you know, whoever else for doing something incorrectly. But yeah, I think even at the end of this chapter, Hagrid still hasn't taken on the responsibility of of the the adult. Because here's another thing in this chapter, and I'm this is why I had a bit of trouble with this because sometimes I I I did enjoy it and a lot happened. But as I as I said, some of it I'm unsure about how much of it works on a character level and how much of it is just done for almost narrative convenience. So, for example, why is it Hermione and Harry who have to take Norbert up to the top of the tower? Why can't Hagrid do it? Is it because of the invisibility cloak? Is it because Hagrid can't really face to do it? Like, why did these two children have to take on that burden and that responsibility? Why doesn't Hagrid do it? I don't know. Does it explain but, it? What? It doesn't explain it, but that's also just made me think why do they have to take him to the castle anyway i know that charlie's friends are flying in and they're like, taken to the highest tower okay that makes sense but hagrid's cabin where norbert is originally uh hagrid's cabin is on the edge of the forbidden forest yeah so surely under the cover of darkness in amongst the trees they could have come down and taken norbert away in greater secrecy than having to try and smuggle him up into the castle. like As Harry did in the previous chapter. Going in after Snape. Yeah. 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 Unobserved. That's true. Surely I that sp- would make more sense. I suppose Hagrid is is uh, inadvertently teaching them a lesson here. Yes. Which is, you may ask a question, why are these three children taking it upon themselves to investigate? And the answer is Hagrid. Mm-hmm. So he's the authority. He, he's what, the adult, the authority figure. And they see them they're more responsible than he is Mm -hmm. so they have to they take it upon themselves because Hagrid doesn't and I think you can see that with them having to labor with the dragon carrying this burden which Hagrid has created it's a very physical thing and they have to go under the cloak and be very like you're very aware of their bodies and the space and they are risking at least 20 points for Gryffindor (laughs) Each. Oh, Paul, you, you just wait. It's I not 20, know. baby. It's it's worse than that. <laughs> and I think that's why she, you, you, perhaps you're right that it doesn't, you know, it doesn't make sense that this character wouldn't do that. But I think it is communicating something to us at the same time. I think it can make sense. It just might be a bit more contrived. I do feel that, um, you know, I mean, this is the beginning of the story. I think that Rowling's character motivations and her narratives become 
more mature and clearer as the books go on. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm just saying, um, there's some things like that in, especially I, I feel in the first book. I feel even in the second book, it's these little issues have gotten actually much more ironed out. I'll have to see if I'm correct in that when we go back to, to the second one again, because I think it does make more sense to go to the Forbidden Forest. Maybe they just didn't want to risk Charlie's friends coming all the way down there. Like, is that too risky? Maybe it's not an easy place to get away than at the top of the, the tower um, because they are risking, like they're breaking international law to do this. <laughs> it's very serious. And it's played, like it happens so quickly. I don't know. It's like when you have to deeply analyze this chapter, maybe we are, maybe I am just like analyzing it too much. But there's a lot going on because you can actually, the, the interesting thing about this is you see actually all the information that Ron knows about dragon law. He's got loads of info about it. He knows like the dates, he knows the treaties. And it's like, well, everyone knows this. And know. he's I, very Hermione about the dragons in I this thought, book. I thought that was quite amusing in yeah. a chapter where they're worrying about study and they say, well, that's our laws. And he, he <laughs> yeah, has Ron all this articulation. Right. But it's just occurred to me, perhaps he knows that because of his brother. Yeah, I think Not so. that his brother taught him, but that he looks up to his brother. And as we've seen in the Mirror Versa, he does want to match the accomplishments of his elders, his yeah. older brothers. I think that's, I think that's true. And I love Charlie's note. It's like, again, I really wish we got to know Charlie better. So his note, he says, uh, Dear Ron, how are you? Thanks for the letter. I'd be glad to take the Norwegian Ridge back, but it won't be easy in getting him here. I think the best thing will be to send him over with some friends of mine who are coming to visit me next week. Trouble is, they mustn't be seen carrying an illegal dragon. It's like, what? Like, you know, and then it's like, oh yeah, just, you know, could you get the ridge bag up to the tallest tower at midnight on Saturday? They can meet you there and take him away while it's still dark. Send me an answer as soon as possible. Love, Charlie. Like, this super illegal operation is happening. And Charlie is so blasé about it. It's like, oh, my 11-year-old brother is just, like, smuggling out. <laughs> but I guess that's what um, Charlie support yeah. and the having a plan of action is what gives him the confidence to even attempt something as crazy as smuggling an illegal dragon that's up to true. the tallest tower. Yeah. A bit like with Cadmus, he was mm -hmm. kind of, you know, boosted by Apollo's prophecy yeah. and a plan of action. You know, they have, they know what their task is and they have a plan for it and they have an end goal and they know that somebody's going to be there to meet them. So they just have to get there. Yeah. Um, and I think that's quite fortifying for them. Their task isn't, it doesn't have the same goal as Cadmus. Cadmus has a lot more of the adult responsibility as you were saying, Paul, I think, because once they get rid of Norbert, that's it, that's the end of their task. But once Cadmus slays the dragon, he still has to take on the responsibility of being a founder of a city, which yeah. is a huge thing to do. After taking so much caution to get the dragon to the top of the tower, Lads. they, they you know, they jump into shadows. They are yeah. like Cadmus's men. They become, and like Hagrid, they become careless. Mm -hmm. In the end, they leave the uh, invisibility cloak at the, at the top, which is, you're right, they don't become adults. No. This is just an, another step. Yeah, I mean, they are 11. You don't expect it <laughs> of them. But I think you're right. There is, despite this kind of stepping up that the, the, the three of them have to do in this chapter to try to make Hagrid see sense and help him do something he, he doesn't want to do, but probably knows he should. They do take on a great responsibility, but they are extremely careless. 
And again, a lot of this, I think, it makes sense when you're thinking about 11-year-old kids. Um, it doesn't seem as in later years they would be as careless as to just mention this this huge thing in the middle of a herbology class when Malfoy can overhear them. So you still see that mix of they have to take on these big responsibilities that's been ever-growing since Harry has arrived at Hogwarts. Um, this is just a, a little sidestep on the road to Nicholas Flamel and the Philosopher's Stone. But they are still hugely careless in their discussions of it. And then afterwards, when they, they're just so happy to be rid of the burden that Filch catches them so easily. They manage to get a dragon all the way up to the tower and then you just leave your visibility cloak there. It's just so, it's so, Come on. oh, it's the worst. Talking about Malfoy um, and like what his motives would be, it reminded me of um, well, it reminded me of last week when Paul was saying that Ron and Neville beating up Malfoy and Crab and Goyle was not the right thing to do, and even though there was no ill repercussions in last the last chapter, I think we do see that that is weighing on Ron's mind here because when Ron is in the hospital wing. Um, after being bitten by the dragon Malfoy comes in and he already knows about the dragon at this point um, and he tells Madame Pomfrey that he needs to borrow a book from Ron and um, comes in and just teases him about maybe telling the teachers and Ron says oh he's done this because of the Quidditch match so I think that Paul was right and that this this has really wounded Malfoy's pride so again maybe one of the reasons why Malfoy wouldn't act on this information is his confidence yeah it might be a bit out of character for him but maybe he's i mean he's tried running to teachers before like telling filch about the midnight jewel and whatnot and that hasn't worked out for him so maybe he's trying to bide his time and he he likes toying with people like things are he likes playing games as we, we noticed in the with the remember all and all this trickery he likes that so maybe he just enjoys like teasing them and then of course it's ron's carelessness where he leaves charlie's letter in the book that he lends to malfoy which again bit of a plot contrivance but i'll take it it's fine and that's how malfoy knows that the whole norbert escape plan is happening and he gets caught out of bed by professor mcgonagall and then i wanted to think about this then why is malfoy get out of bed for this but when he didn't for the midnight jewel chapter like he actually shows up in this one and he didn't in the midnight jewel like why would he choose to show up now yeah what exactly is his plan <laughs> to uh show up and say i knew it and then run and get a teacher yeah because he's still out of bed right yeah and he obviously hadn't told any teachers because <laughs> people were stunned to see him out of bed yeah so yeah i don't understand what that is i think you're right i think he's the kind of uh, person who who wants information. Mm. But unlike uh, Harry and the gang, who are searching for information to reveal a, a secret plan plotted by Snape, so we think, <laughs> to get the Philosopher's Stone, uh, Malfoy is collecting information to concoct his own sort of web to get Harry, catch him out somehow. So it could be that he was there to see what would happen. Maybe he doesn't know exactly why he was there. Yeah. Maybe he was going to hide and just see what information he could accumulate to use against him later on. Yeah, I mean, I do think that 
it, it's a maybe it's a bit of a cop out, but I do think a lot of this can be explained by just like kid logic, where you don't think things tr- through. Like I can think of like, loads of things that happened to me when I was around that age. I'm like, why did I do that? Like, what was I expecting to get out of that? Or like just just random weird things, and it's like the logic of that doesn't make any sense. I mean, nothing is quite as dramatic as this, but you're like, yeah, like why did I go to that place? Why did I do that thing? You know, it it doesn't you don't really have that you you mm. haven't matured enough to be able to plot out but i think in the way that you're saying paul that we are seeing ron and hermione and harry develop their characters here i mm. think we see that with malfoy because he does become a lot more mature and a lot more scheming as nothing he gets older. in not, nothing this is not real life nothing is by accident mm-hmm. i think even by not by Malfoy not doing what we we would expect, perhaps we 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 learn something about him. Oh, you're saying that because this story has been crafted by a person, she hasn't put anything in there accidentally. Like those details all do matter. I'd agree with that. I think that's I think that's true. So, it yeah it it's it it is something that we have to pay attention to that I, yeah, Malfoy I, did this. Another thing we have to pay attention to is. That you, what you said, these are 11-year-old children. <laughs> Does Malfoy fear being um, thought of as a coward? We see that maybe he feels like he has been shown to be a coward and he wants to show that. So, for example, with the with the Midnight Jewel, he didn't show up and maybe, oh, well, that's him being a coward. And then with the Ron and Neville um, <laughs> um, attacking him and Crab and Goyle, he, he wants to save face and maybe he, he actually takes the the Gryffindor stance in this in this book where he tries to be a man of action but it doesn't work out for him I don't know so a um another Dickens novel David Copperfield opens with the famous line uh you know who will be who will be the hero of this story will it be me will it be someone else and the point of that one of the many aspects of that book is that although our lives are shaped by other people you are the hero of your own life mm. Um, so the hero of David Copperfield is David Copperfield. The hero of Malfoy's life is Malfoy. Malfoy. And as we see in Cadmus, one of these early sort of proto-hero types, what he, you know, he armored himself with uh, his his sword and his shield, but most important of all was his courage. Mm-hmm. So this yeah. courage is um, it's a part of the hero. I think I think so. Yes, he does. He is afraid of being a coward. I think that is a very everyone is afraid of being a coward of not acting when they need to be acting you know what interesting though is um which was a line in the cadmus story which i overlooked in my first reading and then sort of stuck out to me which was when cadmus confronts the snake he does two things which is one he sort of panics and throws a stone Mm -hmm. and the second is right that didn't work so he has to be cold and calculating and and pierce the 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 dragon in the between its scales and I, I, you know, to me, that was the throwing the stone is the kind of like autopilot fear reaction. He doesn't think about it. And then he has to be present and figure this out. Similarly, you know, so Harry, um, Harry is, he has to be calm and collected when he's learning and using magic. But when he doesn't is when he's... uh speaking Slytherin, it's something which just sort of comes natural without thinking. Um, and interesting with Cadmus is that later on in Cadmus's life, he sort of loses that cunning ability and he uh, he becomes just sort of like a, 
an old man. He ends up turning into a snake. There is there is a dark part inside of Cadmus, which maybe meant that he was a great hero, but eventually consumed him, and, and that that's manifested in him turning into a snake. Mm. And there is equally a dark side of of Harry, and we can see that with the what's it called when he speaks to the snakes the parcel parcel tongue, parcel tongue. Um, so someone who can speak to snakes is called a parcel mouth and i think the act of speaking it is the it, language itself yeah is the language tongue. is called parcel tongue so maybe camus could only overcome the dragon because there was a bit of darkness inside him and that's what makes harry so interesting and that's what makes luke skywalker mm-hmm. in in star wars so interesting is the potential for them to be villains but that's never the thing that's interesting about Harry Potter, and we can return to this um, as we continue through the series, is that I think even Dumbledore mentions this to him at one point, maybe the sixth book. Um, he's never tempted by that. And that, because, yeah, I think there is a potential there, but it's it's never something that Harry considers. He's mm. always against the Dark Arts. That's not part of the Harry Potter story, is that, oh, he could turn evil. It's not It's not part of it. I think, but it is part of it. Of, of him, yeah. So equally with, I mean, with... <laughs> With the example of Luke Skywalker, mm-hmm. Anakin Skywalker was a good Jedi, but he had that, he changed, he went to the dark side. And Luke is of his blood, the, mm-hmm. that potential there. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily that he was tempted. Luke, you could argue, was never tempted to go to the dark side. But that fear that he would be tempted was there because there's this dark potential within him, equally with Harry. And that's why Harry's so afraid of Slytherin. It's because of what, he, yeah, mm. it's afraid of what he could become. He is part Voldemort, isn't he, or something? He, he kind of. There's this, you know, <laughs> there's he, a fragment of Voldemort's yeah. soul inside Harry. He's he's marked by the scar. Mm. The scar throbs and reminds him of I'm how dangerous he can be, and that part, the parcel tongue, the that evil sort of bit comes easily without thinking, and yeah. I think that's scary that you know that you would do something evil without on autopilot without necessarily realizing that's really a a very interesting observation especially when you say that something is on autopilot because we'll see that that actually is what gets harry in trouble in the second book is he doesn't even realize what he's doing and everyone is shocked by it keep that in your head because it it comes up very importantly later you know who else are on autopilot who civil war boys our teeth men. Oh, uh, the teeth men. Yes, <laughs> yeah. the 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 dragon's teeth that Cadmus plants in the in the soil and then spread up into full grown men who start instantly fighting each other. It's strange, you know, for city is sort of founded on on this conflict. Mm. It does taint the city somewhat. It does carry on yeah. throughout the history of the city, and equally with with Harry, that that conflict of you know the green flash does. Yeah, I think that's interesting is that, I mean, basically everything has been founded on so much, like historically. Mm. Literally. Like, every land has been founded on conflict. These these, sol- these soldiers which help them build the city are literally the product of the space, the land, mm-hmm. and blood and dragon teeth. <laughs> yeah. And the first act is to kill each other. Is, is a civil war. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating. And I was then wondering about the just the symbol of the dragon, I suppose, in general. That idea that the dragon guards a treasure, right? That's kind of what we think of, um, especially, I mean, so much so that, that Tolkien you know, did it with Smog. 
It's Smog, everyone. I refuse to call it Smog, despite what the films say. Are you on board with Smog? I always said Smog until the film. Yeah. (laughs) It shook me to my core that they called him Smog. I I couldn't get over that. Um, But um, yeah, so um, I guess what, like, what's the treasure that this serpent dragon is guarding for Cadmus? Because it belongs to Mars, which I think is a big deal. So Mars is the god of war. and we will get to talk a bit more about Mars in, oh, the next chapter, the Forbidden Forest chapter, actually. So that's important. It's golden and godly and it's, it's, it's marked by that. And yet Cadmus is able to defeat it. Is it guarding this, the spring? Is it guarding this, the ground? What, what is it? The prize is Thebes. Yeah. But Thebes. That's what he gains by overcoming. Mm, but Thebes, Thebes, I mean, doesn't exist until Cadmus founds it. So it's not as if Thebes is already there and the dragon's just guarding that big thing that Cadmus takes over. Nothing is more more important than potential. Mm -hmm. You know, if you look at a little baby, they're they're just a bundle of literal potential and there's so much value. They're a treasure. They are, (laughs) you know, you go through this whole ordeal to get the baby and and it is, you treasure it and Mm. all it is is a bundle of potential. Mm. And equally when they, when he overcomes the dragon, that treasure is Thebes. It's the potential for the city of Thebes and Mm -hmm. what it could become. Um, and then that becomes complicated with the idea of prophecy and yes. oracle and self-fulfillment, you know, that this, this city built uh, killing a, a dragon which was uh, favored by Mars and uh, Cadmus having to atone for that and the, the city being built, um, as we say, on violence. And so its foundations are violence. The only solution, logical solution then is more violence. So the dragon, what? The treasure that they're guarding is is potential. You think, th- like th- thematically speaking, I think so. And do you think that we could read that into the Harry Potter chapter? I was just thinking. Yeah, I was just thinking. Well, my question is, it's planted there, right? Because this guy oh, loses yeah. him in poker, and he wanted to get rid of it. What does it say? Poker, wizard poker. What it? Yeah. <laughs> what would that even look like? Just, oh. I think it's just a card game, isn't yeah. it? That they refer to. Card so it could game, well yeah. be poker. Exploding for all we know. snap. Exploding. Yeah, I'm guess yeah. that's my head cannon. Yeah. So it is planted there isn't it mm. so it, again it's it's uh it's uh suspicious from the get-go there's something is going on yeah like Hagrid just happens to get this egg from like this shady guy in a bar Who gets him gets him drunk it. yeah it's kind of odd because mm. in all of the ancient stories where the dragon is guarding something in this the dragon is kind of given as a bribe for the guard to lower their own guard and reveal oh, information because Hagrid yeah. is guarding the secret of the Philosopher's Stone. Mm. And so the dragon is given so that he will then reveal the information that That's really the mysterious person who is yeah. Quirrell, <laughs> who, who, you know, played the card game and gave the dragon so he could find what? that information. I know. Shocker. Paul is shocked. <laughs> Unbelievable. I Paul is still he's still, I'm sure, trying to convince himself that Quirrell can't surely can't be can't be evil. And I feel so bad because at the beginning of this chapter we find out that that Ron starts standing up for Quirrell and saying, Hey, stop making fun of his stutter, everyone. Exactly. Quirrell doesn't deserve little, Ron. little do they know Ron though. Is so yeah. good. <laughs> and Quirrell is just oblivious. Um but yeah, no, what you say about that, that that the strange role of the dragon in this chapter that's really interesting um i guess the thing that i think of i think it was joseph campbell 
who talked about this. I mean, it's a well-known idea, but I think he phrased it like this. Um, so he's written a lot about heroes and myth. Um, and he says, the thing about the dragon is that it, it guards a treasure, but it's a treasure that can't be used. Like that treasure that the dragon is guarding is always cursed. And we see this in, um, I mean, The Hobbit. We see it in C.S. Lewis. Uh, we see it, you know, I mean, way back. Like they, they, they're, um, bring, Tolkien and Lewis are getting those stories from ancient myths as well. But also, I've just thought, yeah. Shrek, right? <laughs> <laughs> the dragon is guarding Princess Fiona, who is cursed. <laughs> exactly. That's true. But also talking about how um, dragon, the dragon in this chapter is subverting all of our expectations of what the dragon should be doing. Mm-hmm. Um, we also see Norbert being saved rather than slain That's in this true. chapter. So it's yeah. kind of a complete reversal again. So very much yeah. subverting expectations. Yeah, it is much more of a um, conservationist kind of, this is a dangerous <laughs> animal we need to protect yes, it. Yes, rather than... Um... Rather than, uh, yeah. I suppose what's interesting is, um, I suppose in the in the myths, we, you can't really keep secrets from the gods, or as you say, Claire, it's very difficult. Whilst... Uh... Oh, you're talking about how Zeus, a.k.a. Jove, um, aka Jupiter, has uh, stolen Europa and hidden her away on an island, which is Crete, I think, isn't it? I think it's Crete. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. Whilst in the Harry Potter world, there there is no all-knowing Joe. There, mm. You know, so it it is much, yeah, it's more of a detective story than if everything can be prophesized and foretold, then there is no detective stories. <laughs> or if they are, they're very boring. You don't think Dumbledore is the uh, Jove of this? Oh, maybe, yeah. Because we were talking about the Mirror of Arisad chapter, and Paul didn't mention this in the podcast, but he, he has a theory that Dumbledore might have planted the mirror there. Was Dumbledore pulling the strings, like, with oh, Harry? Oh, yeah, one could... Uh, I couldn't help but think, like... Because he's such a mysterious character, mm. and, you you know, and he's so revered, but he's such a silly man that that's... <laughs> You 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 instantly distrust him for a man of such a reputation to be on a, a chocolate frog card with Nicholas Flamel. Suspicious. Suspicious. Or just very intriguing. Socks. <laughs> no way. No. <laughs> the only time Dumbledore has reached for sock is when it's full of doorknobs, <laughs> and he's going to kill. Some students who saw something that, that feels more like an Aberforth move than an Albus move. <laughs> Definitely, <laughs> poor Paul doesn't know what I'm talking about. Who? <laughs> Again, all shall be revealed in time. In time, yeah. <laughs> At the rate we're going through it, I, I'll need a philosopher's stone to get to the end of the book, <laughs> to the end of the series. So, the quote that. I was looking at this week is very simple, but it just struck me uh, when I read this chapter. Oh, so this is when uh, Hagrid has just told the trio about Norbert and Hermione is giving Hagrid warning that he lives in a wooden house. This dragon is going to burn it down. They have all this information hanging over their heads. It just says here, wonder what it's like to have a peaceful life, Ron sighed. That does basically summarise their entire school career. <laughs> I really felt like... That was very wise from Ron. It feels like something a much older person would say. And it says a lot coming from the mouth of this 11-year-old boy. who's just like, oh my gosh, moment after moment, there's always something going on. And I felt like this is 
so true, Ron. So true. And it's only going to get more eventful from here. Well, here's my choice quote. Yeah, go on. It's uh, when they're bringing the dragon, carrying this heavy weight. How could these two 11-year-old children carry such a heavy responsibility? Malfoy's got detention. I could sing, said Hermione. Don't, Harry advised her. <laughs> yeah, so this, uh, again, maybe speaks to how they were getting a bit careless towards the end there. Everything seemed to be going their way. They'd gotten the dragon up. Malfoy was getting detention. Everything's great. Overly Bam. confident. Exactly. Never get overly confident. Filch. So thank you for listening, readers. Um, this week I have been bullied into doing this closing <laughs> message by Claire and Paul. Uh, no, as Paul was being the Malfoy. I'm like Neville. Okay, <laughs> if, if you insist. So uh, next week we will be reading Chapter 15, The Forbidden Forest. Looking at Ares and Athena and their roles in Book 5 of the Iliad. Yeah, hope to see you next week. Bye. 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 Bye.